and welcome to Ireland's Place in Space, the podcast that celebrates the role of Ireland and Irish people out on the final frontier. I'm Sean Duke, science journalist, and I'll be your host. This podcast is supported by Space Industry Skillnet, who are co-founded by Skillnet Ireland and its network companies. Ireland has developed a remarkable reputation as a designer of software used in space. In this episode, we're going to hear from two people involved with successful home-based companies that are putting Ireland on the map as a supplier of space software. We'll also hear in our Irish People in Space slot from an award-winning Irish scientist and UCD graduate now working with NASA. But first, let's hear from Fintan Buckley, a veteran of the Irish space industry and the CEO of Ubotica Technologies Limited. Ubotica is a small but growing Irish company that has developed AI software for satellites which can reduce the data load sent back to Earth. The system problem that that, um, that ESA, the European Space Agency, are trying to address is is how how to how to extract information from image data of the Earth. Okay, hmm. and your this image data is not been captured with your standard uh, RGB type sensors. We're using hyperspectral um, cameras, so they're much more than than the traditional three bands. Um, and you know they they can be seven, they can be thirty, you know, lot, lots of lots of different bands uh, on these sensors. So what you end up with is is uh, these, uh, if you like, image cubes as they call them, which are large. And to downlink these uh, image cubes is very very uh, costly in terms of time um, and uh, and. Uh, uh, the time being the fact that the the bandwidth that, that exists between these these satellites and the ground stations is is very slow yeah so we all know about that <laughs> that kind of thing exactly yeah i mean you're not dealing you know this is not 4g 5g technology you're dealing yeah. with these images down so the, the 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 focus is can you can you apply technology ai technology in particular on board the satellite to actually analyze the images that are captured by these sensors and actually extract usable information. So, for example, if you're trying to, you know, imaging the uh, water, can you detect ships? And if you detect ships, can you actually just downlink the locations of the ships rather than the, the full image itself? If you're trying to detect a fire, can you similarly detect the fire and just download um, or transmit down to Earth the location of the fire as opposed to the image itself? So those those are the you know the the, the types of applications that these um, uh, CubeSats, as they're called, are trying to address. That's fascinating because obviously, if you're on the ground and you have a specific question like that, you only want the answer to your specific question, you know, as quickly as possible. You don't want this huge amount of data that you have to sift through. Correct, and and on top of that, the. Uh, um, a lot of the image data that's captured by these satellites is actually useless because um, living here in Ireland, you will know that uh, much of the time the country is covered in cloud. Yes, of right? course. So, <laughs> so you have an application that you're, you know, let's say with the, the, the ship detection application. Okay, you want to capture images of ships. Um, but actually, most of you know, if, if, if you know that there's cloud in the image, 
then uh, there's a huge benefit in terms of usable data that you're getting if you can discard, discard this image or even portions of the image that, that has cloud detected in it. All right. And that was the application that was deployed on board uh, PSAT, uh, PSAT 1. So was, this, uh, the, yeah, with yeah. that one, that's that's an example. But the, the CubeSats, now just a brief word about them. I mean, these are, what are they for those that don't know? And I mean, are, they're going to become more important, aren't they? Well, the, the, the CubeSats are, um, they're, they're standardized uh, satellites, but they're small. You know, they, um, a, they, they come in, they, they define them in terms of liters, um, uh, 3U, 6U, 12U. Um, and this is the, the capacity of these satellites. You know, um, a twelve uh, U uh, satellite would but would be about the size of a of a desktop computer. So these things are small, um, and uh, they typically consist of a um, a sensor of some description. You know, we we were focusing here on, on Earth observation um, uh, cubesats, so they would have sensors, uh, a sensor on it. It would have a, a processor on it. Um, uh, and onboard computers, as is referred to, for, for managing the satellite. It would have a um, uh, comms for uh, downlink and uplink. Um, and, and that's about it. You know, so there's not an awful lot of technology in them. The, the main um, uh, computer on these things is, you know, typically uh, some form of ARM-based uh, microprocessor that's driving all of this. Um, you know, key parameters on them are uh, the power budget. You know, it, it's getting its power from um, um, from solar panels. So if you're trying to perform uh, complex compute operations that are consuming power, then you're going to draw down um, on your uh, on your uh, on your power budget. So you know that's one of the the benefits of using this um, uh, myriad device uh, for doing your uh, AI acceleration is that it has an extremely low uh, power consumption budget. Right. And these, just to cut across for a second, so yeah. these CubeSats, I mean, they're cheaper than the, the really big, expensive kind of communication satellites. Like, you know, uh, lots more people are going to be able to have CubeSats up there in the future, I guess. Yeah, they're, they're becoming commodity. Um, and, you know, when, when people talk about, companies talk about putting CubeSats up there, they look at, you know, the life cycle um, and that they, you know, be, you know, project them every two to two and a half years and then they refresh them, you know. Um, you you would be looking, you know, in, in today's market, you know, a the cost of, of design, build, launch, operate a CubeSat of somewhere between two and three million euros. You know, yeah. so, so not, you know, it's a lot of money, but not a huge amount of money. Yeah, but you could have, for example, the likes of, I don't know, UCD or Trinity or you know, it wouldn't have to be, the, say, the Irish government. I mean, it's becoming more accessible to more entities. Absolutely. And, uh, and anecdotally, you know, we, we've heard that quite a, quite a number of uh, uh, European countries are looking for um, uh, their, their post-pandemic spend. They're, they're looking at putting up their own constellations of these CubeSats. It's definitely a, a significant growth area. The, there are significant problems in, 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 in this as well. And, you know, the, what, what we have, have met is, is our first um, milestone in, in terms of proving that we have the technology and, you know, both the hardware and the software to, to enable um, AI acceleration on board satellite. The, uh, as part of this journey, we recognize, you know, what are the problems in, 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 um, in actually deploying these AI applications? 
So, so areas that we are now actively focused on um, are, um, uh, number one, how, how do you manage the development of AI models when, when you have a, a, a variety of these image sensors that are generating the data? So it, it's a big problem that, uh, you know, to, to, to train an AI model, you need data. And in, in the case of satellite, if, if, if you're a sensor using a temper flown, then you don't have any data. So, so that's one area that, that we're very active in, in, in developing technology for, uh, if you like, sensor agnostic um, uh, AI inference. Um, the other area that we're very focused on is um, reliable AI. And we, we have technology that we've uh, deployed actually in a terrestrial application, which is um, supervising the, the performance of a, of a particular AI model in a medical application. And the idea is um, to, to actually uh, check or supervise the decision that the AI model itself is making so that you know whether you can depend on that or not. Um, and, you know, whilst it may not be important in, in a satellite uh, application where you're just imaging and analyzing image data from Earth, we're also um, working on programs where we're using our AI technology for navigation, for object retrieval. Um, uh, and also we will be starting a, uh, uh, some, some work as well on um, the, uh, the analysis of broadband signals that have been generated. Um, uh, uh, sorry, not broadband. Sorry, uh, com signals uh, on on satellite as well using AI. So, um, so being able to to depend to to be able to depend on on your AI is is, is very critical going, going forward. And that's the other area that we're very focused on. That was Fintan Buckley. Now it's time for Did You Know, the slot where we highlight some little-known story that relates to our podcast theme. Well, the theme for today's episode is Irish design software that has been sent to space, and we just heard there from Fintan Buckley, the CEO of Ubotica. Well, did you know that Ubotica made history in 2020 when it provided the software that enables the first use of AI or artificial intelligence in space on board a satellite to detect cloud cover in Earth observation images? This was done in order to pre-select and send back to Earth only those images where it was possible to see interesting features on the ground not blocked by clouds. The significance of what Ubotica did is that it reduces the time and cost of using Earth observation data to solve terrestrial problems in areas like agriculture, forestry, ocean systems and climate change. Now it's time for Irish Space People. This is where we feature Irish people past and present who have made or are likely to make an impact on space exploration and research. In this episode, we've featured Dr. Judy McInerney, an award-winning scientist who is based at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center near Washington, DC. Judy is the senior project scientist for the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is due to launch in 2025. The scientific objectives of the telescope include a desire to seek answers to questions about dark energy, and to conduct a census of exoplanets, which it is thought may help us answer the age-old questions about potential for life elsewhere in the universe. 
where are you from in Ireland and how did you first get interested in science? So um, I'm from Dublin. There really hasn't been a time that I haven't been interested in science. Um, you know, right from when I was a, a little girl and we had, um, you know, the children's encyclopedia and I was reading things about, you know, how rainbows form. And um, I've always just really wanted to understand how the universe worked. You know, why the sky is blue, why the grass is green, you know, where the stars are, how they got there. Um, you know, and so that just that's just driven every every decision that I've uh, that I've made. So it sounds like you're a natural born scientist. So you ended up you ended up going to UCD. Tell us about that and how your per- career progressed after UCD. I went to uh, UCD um, to do uh, to do a PhD in experimental physics, um, and uh, actually the story about how I uh, how I got there is a is a story all by itself. So I I had done my undergrad in England, and then I knew I wanted to do a PhD, and I didn't really know what the universities in Ireland uh, did. Um, so I w- was uh, visiting home and I was catching the bus back uh, back home and the bus went past um, UCD and I decided to get off and just go into the department and ask what they were doing. And when I walked into the physics department, I saw a door that said high energy astrophysics and I went in and um, I met the guy inside and he was uh, one of the other uh, PhD students and he introduced me to his advisor uh, who convinced me that what his group did was everything that I'd I'd want. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do particle physics or uh, astronomy. And uh, my advisor, uh, David Fegan, convinced me that uh, the field of high energy astrophysics was the combination of particle physics and uh, and astronomy. And actually, he was right. Um, and it all started from there. So they, they sold it to you. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and why did you do, out of curiosity, do your undergrad in the UK then, as opposed to just going into the normal route uh, that most of us would do, I suppose? Well, so my, uh, my parents left Ireland when I was, um, uh, when I was 11. So I went to boarding school in Ireland for a, for a couple of years. And then I went to school in the Middle East, which is where my parents were living for a couple of years. And then I went to school in England for a couple of years. So at that point, um, England seemed as obvious a place to go to university as, uh, as uh, Ireland, but with the difference that uh, but at the time there were no university fees in England and there were in Ireland. Um, so it just seemed most natural to, uh, to stay, in, stay in the UK. Okay, that's interesting. So you got around a lot when you were younger. Um, So uh, when you did the PhD, then hopefully it lived up to your expectations. Uh, How did it go? And what was what happened after that? Uh, So the PhD was uh, was wonderful. I mean, it was, um, you know, I had uh, every opportunity that I needed to uh, to succeed. I met a lot of great people. Um, We the group had um, uh, a partnership with um, a group in the in the U.S., also led by an Irishman, uh, Trevor Weeks, and uh, that meant that um, we had the opportunity to travel out to the U.S. for a few months every year. So I spent um, summers in Ireland and winters in um, southern Arizona, which was nice and warm. So that was great. Uh, but what was really great is that uh, we had opportunities to meet lots of different people, which really helps you develop uh, develop your career. Uh, you get exposed to lots of uh, new ideas and ways of uh, working. So it really set me up to um, 
you know, when I finished the PhD to have the connections of people to get the next job, but also to have the skills that I needed to uh, to really succeed in the next step. Brilliant. So it gave you the opportunity, I, I guess, to to go where you are today. Uh, so, I mean, NASA, of course, everybody knows NASA. And uh, what's it like to work there? I mean, is it, is it as exciting as it would seem from the outside? It actually is. Um, I mean, you know, every time they do a survey of like happiness in the federal government, the NASA comes out close to the top um, or usually right at the top. Um, and it's largely because we are all doing something we're completely passionate about. I mean, I get paid to um, to work on something that, you know, would be a hobby if I could get away with it. Um, I'm surrounded by really extraordinarily good engineers so if I have half an idea for um, you know a kind of telescope that I think would be a good idea or a scientific idea I'm surrounded by people who can help um, help you know help make it happen you know of course it's like any job um, you know we don't uh, uh, sit there and ponder great thoughts uh, all the time I mean there's a lot of you know the normal nuts and bolts and you know, wheels cranking just to make things uh, make things go. But, you know, it's punctuated by moments of extraordinary excitement that when you when you discover something about the universe that you're not expecting to see, it's it's a it's a, it's a feeling I, it's, it's hard to even describe. It's really amazing. That's pure joy by the sound of it. <laughs> and as that has that happened, have you been lucky enough for that to happen many times in your career so far? I've had a few times. Um, you know, one of the more recent was um, when we discovered. Um, so the mission I worked on before uh, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope was the uh, Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope, and uh, uh, what Fermi does is detect flash. One of the things it does is detect flashes of gamma rays from a gamma ray burst, and um, it was fairly routine. We'd normally see these like a couple of times uh, a week. And what they're marking is the birth of a black hole um, in some distant point of the of the universe. But on one day, um, we got uh, uh, an email from um, from a colleague who says we've just detected gravitational waves, and it's at you know within two seconds of a gamma ray burst that your observatory has uh, has detected. And at that moment, you know we now understood what gamma ray bursts were much better than before. It was the first time um, we'd detected normal light and gravitational waves at the at the same time. It was, you know, really, you know, truly extraordinary moment. And, uh, you know, the, the next few weeks are just intense because you're checking, you know, is the result absolutely right? What does it really mean? You know, uh, it was fabulous. It sounds like you wouldn't swap the job for anything else. <laughs> and uh, can I ask you as well, um, astrophysics. Now, I, I, I don't know what, what vintage you are, but I, I would have been in college in, say, the mid to late 80s. And there, there, I don't think there were too many women doing astrophysics. Is it still the case? That, like, is, are you in a bit of a minority? Are there more women coming into it? Um, there aren't. I mean, there are certainly women overall are um, in, um, in a minority. Um, however, in the uh, group that I work at uh, in Goddard, we actually are a slight uh, majority. Um, I, not for any particular reason. It's just one of those things that uh, uh, that happened. But by and large, there aren't uh, aren't that many women, um, which I think is a shame um, because I think you people, without thinking about it, um, make 
uh, sort of decisions about what kind of career paths are going to be appropriate for them or not appropriate based on what they've seen uh, before. So I think the um, relative scarcity of women in astrophysics and actually in the, so the physical sciences uh, generally um, serves to can serve to discourage um, young girls from getting involved in um, in science and that's a shame because it's a fabulous uh, um, career path to go in I mean even if you know you don't not everybody necessarily wants to work uh, uh, at NASA but um, you know there's many many other career paths that uh, that a physics degree will will take you and I hate to think that not seeing people like you would discourage young girls from getting engaged yeah, because even now I have a daughter who's 11 and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised how much stereotyping that's still there. Uh, so, you know, what would you say to girls of that age who are just kind of starting maybe to get a handle on what they like or what they might like to do? I mean, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased, um, but I think that uh, um, everybody, girls included, um, should really do uh, follow their interests, do what uh, what really interests and excite them and don't worry about whether or not something is appropriate or something is hard or something is, you know, unlikely to pan out. You've got no idea uh, where your career is, uh, is going to go. And, you know, it's OK to head off in one direction, decide you don't like it and go and do and go and do something else. Um, but I think um, it's important to um, to pursue your dreams. Julie McInerney there. Lastly today, let's hear now from Sarah Burke. She's CEO with SkyTech, a remarkable Irish space software success story that developed software used by astronauts on the International Space Station to enable them to better manage their onboard activities and workflow procedures without paper. SkyTech has worked for more than two decades as a partner to NASA and ESA. Can you tell me a bit about yourself before we get into SkyTech? Uh, you know, you're considered a space entrepreneur, I guess, but I'm interested in your background, how you got to where you are. Um, well, I suppose my background was um, I did a PhD in entrepreneurship and strategic management. But at that time, I'd spent about six or seven years um, in Trinity College. And it was a combination of, I suppose, my academic kind of experience and also the fact that I had done a PhD in entrepreneurship and strategic management that I um, got a position at the time in Enterprise Ireland uh, looking after the Campus Companies programme, which was to try and get academics to commercialise research. And um, that's where I met my, um, uh, through that, I met my business partner, Paul Kiernan, and uh, we set up SkyTech together. So that's actually how I, I landed up. I, I was never somebody who sought out to be in the space industry. Um, it just kind of happened rather than it by design. Interesting. You saw an opportunity. Uh, so so this goes back to 97, right? So the Irish space sector was a bit Yeah, around now. 2000. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it was around kind of um, 2000, really. We set the company up. Okay, so it's it's a thriving sector now. I think I've talked to a lot of people who are involved different aspects. But what was it like? Say that's twenty one years ago now, uh, in terms of the space sector in Ireland. Well, it is quite funny because we we um when we started off, um we were both a lot younger. Um, but we went our first contract was with um Enterprise Ireland. Actually, it was at twenty five. It was a very small contract. I think it was about twenty five thousand pounds a year or whatever it was. 
and it was to develop something called web um, web act or something and that was the whole idea of getting rid of technical manuals on board the space station and that's actually how we started we over delivered and uh, but at the time there was just um it was just nasa east so there was no kind of commercial operators now it's completely changed the landscape it, you've got your boeing you've got your spacex in there uh, and you've really got a big space commercial space race going on now and then you also have all the new satellites i mean things have changed fundamentally i mean when we started off there was no laptops no you know it was just um you know sorry there was no kind of in you know there was just very very little when i no tablets i'm sorry not laptops there was no tablets there was no you know um and now the way technology is advanced and you know what we can do as well with respect to space has, has come on immeasurably as well over the last kind of 20 years and thanks to people like yourself like ireland is involved in that story which is wonderful yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, Ireland um, doesn't contribute to the human uh, flight um, programme. So uh, I suppose it was purely down to, I suppose, the, you know, what NASA and ESA saw in SkyTech, well, particularly at the time, um, our technical team was we were really very, very good. Um, we developed stuff that nobody else had been able to do within these kind of really good organizations. And that's actually what actually happened was is that we presented what's called IPV today. We presented it uh, to, um, at a meeting to, you know, the Russians, Americans, Japanese, all, all the partners, Canadians. And, you know, we were there representing a space agency and we were just so much better than anything that they had had. And that's how they, we became involved with NASA and, and that relationship has lasted um, over the years. Um, we have continued to evolve that product. And it, this is not like a little piece of technology on board the space station. It's actually the core system that the astronauts use. So um, it's everything from a spacewalk to, you know, looking after all the experiments on board. It's a fundamental part of their operations. And it's, um, you know, um, it, it, it's been great to be part of that. And it also allows us to constantly evolve the product because it's gone from, you know, very much a procedural technical manuals. And now we, we've, you know, ported it onto a tablet. It's on a mobile device. And now we're looking at augmented reality. So we're constantly improving it. I mean, I think there's 15,000 procedures on there now. Right. So just to bring you back a little bit there. So we're talking about software and space. That's the theme for this particular podcast. So this is software uh, that you developed. Um, yes. How did you develop that? Well, sorry, I put you this question. You're talking about procedures on the ISS. So before your product, I mean, what way did they do things on the they ISS? Paper manuals. Yeah. OK. Which was a problem, obviously, because what was the main issue with that? Well, obviously paper in space is not ideal. And um, it's also the whole weight as well. You know, you've got, you know, we've got 15,000 procedures. Um, so every single piece of equipment needs. So it's it's also the whole weight of having all the, the, you know, all the manuals and updating the manuals and everything. If you think of all the issues of, it's not like you can go and get your late, your latest edition. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's all to do with the practicalities of being in space, isn't it? And what about other things that are flying like satellites or whatever? Is your software also used anywhere apart from the ISS up there? Uh, well, I suppose there's two sides to the SkyTech business. So um, the first would be, you know, the, the International Procedure Viewer System. So that would be used. It's also going to be used on the, the forthcoming JUICE mission, which is another uh, going out to um, uh, one of the planets and, and the forerunner. It's a new other project as well. But then um, through involvement, we do a lot of work now in Earth observation and um, Earth observation and 
satellites and you know tracking of assets and things like that so it's a whole different side to what we do and um and we've developed software and all that kind of um uh, technology to assist the insurance industries better manage and kind of their risks around the world so the earth observation thing is huge rather than looking out we're looking down and all kinds of people want to do that right for different reasons yeah, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's just exploding um, at the moment. Uh, and also what you can do before it used to be, I suppose, it was a cost benefit analysis because it was so expensive. But SkyTech really has kind of pivoted itself to being the kind of go to. Um, we have a strategic relationship with Aon. So we're their go to when it comes to, say, tasking satellites and, and getting them information. So a good example would have been, say, you know, it's something like, say, if you think about like the Beirut disaster last year where the, where the port um, there was an unexpected explosion. Um, so immediately the insurance companies were scrambling to know, OK, what vessels were there? You know, how much damage is there? Um, very quickly, we were able to tell them, look, here's the list of vessels that were emitting a signal at the time. And then we were able to task a satellite. And within a kind of a few hours, we were able to tell them, look, here's a picture before, here's a picture after. And here's what we anticipate is kind of going on. Now, that stuff is crucial in the markets because it it helps to steady a market um, in terms of because the loss in that particular. I'm not saying it wasn't a tragedy, but for the insurance industry um, and the marine industry, which were we were focusing in on um there was some very very high value vessels in the area at the time but they weren't affected by the explosion so it's stuff like that that's that's important and it's also from um you know satellites and the whole there's a huge push now within the industry for environmental it's called esg you know monitoring the environment what people are doing and earth observation is fantastic for stuff like that because you can kind of monitor you know the kind of the sea and and you know deforestation co2 emissions things like that and what about young people coming into the industry do you are you hiring them i mean are they still uh, of good caliber yeah, absolutely i mean sky tickets very much about i mean one of one of the um you know people think about space and they think about being an astronaut, but it's so much more than that. And I mean, it's a message that probably people could do, you know, a bit more about certainly getting, trying to get, you know, um, there's a perception. I mean, the space, I think, is must be one of the fastest growing sectors. I mean, and, you know, the, the argument would be that we really um, need to start thinking. Um, there is a, a view that certainly when you're looking for funding in Ireland, they're always talking about where you're going to commercialize it outside of space. And, you know, my my strongly held view now would be that that is a, you know, that's not a, you know, space is an industry and it's a very commercial industry. And instead of trying to get people giving them contracts to commercialize outside of space, we should be trying to stay in the space industry because it's a huge growth area. That was Sarah Burke. That's all for this, our third episode of Ireland's Place in Space, the podcast that celebrates the role of Ireland and Irish people out on the final frontier. If you enjoyed the show, then please rate or review it on the iTunes podcast platform or any of the other platforms where it's available, including Anchor, Breaker, CastBox, Google, Overcast, Radio Public, Spotify and Stitcher. If you would like to get in touch with the show to make suggestions or comments or to suggest a story worth covering, please email me, Sean Duke, presenter of Ireland's Place in Space at seancduke at gmail.com. I'd like to just wish you good health and until we all meet again next time here, thank you for listening. <laughs>